We're going to go through uh, Genesis chapter 44. If you have a Bible, let's turn there real quick. One of the things that I used to do teaching school was I like to review. Now, the luxury of teaching school is that every student has to be there every day, bar some you know, exceptions like if they are sick or whatever. It's pretty much 99% of the time, every student is gonna be there every single day. So I had that luxury of knowing that where all of my students are at at the same time. They're a cohort of students. Here, however, I have people that you're here for the first time today. You, you maybe haven't even opened the pages of Genesis in your entire life. <laughs> or you have, but you're, you're not sure what Genesis 44 is all about. And then I got people who have been here every week for the past 44 weeks going through all of Genesis with us. So it's a kind of a hodgepodge of people and what their level of, of understanding of these chapters and this narrative. So what I like to do is to access, access from you what you already know about Genesis 44 and what we've got to at this point. So I'm going to ask you a question. What are some connections? We talked briefly, very briefly, about two individuals, two brothers that are sons of Jacob. Their name are Benjamin and Joseph. A third one is Judah. And I talked very briefly about an interesting connection between those two. Do you guys remember that if you were here last week? How there's an interesting connection between Benjamin and Judah. And you see that throughout the pages of Scripture. First of all, we have these, you know, there's these two brothers, and I made some notes here. I'm going to write them up on the board. But it's a fascinating connection. I want you guys to see this. The first one, obviously, Benjamin and Judah were brothers. One is almost the firstborn. The, the other one is the lastborn. They don't have much in common, and there's, there's a lot of time and years in between these two brothers. But we're going to see them both play a pivotal role with each other's lives in terms of connecting the family together. Just look at the, the tribal land inheritance for it. Bradley, you're my light man. Would you turn the lights, front lights off for me? Here's the tribal land allotments according to Deuteronomy chapter 33. You see the tribe of Judah. So all the descendants of the son of, of, the, of, of Jacob named Judah, all his descendants. He just turned it on. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, just turn it back on. And then um, take the remote. And then who wants to help Bradley? Get up for May. Yeah, May. Uh, you, need good, you need a good woman in your life. <laughs> all, all the descendants of Judah will have this tribal allotment. And the, the, the boundaries of that they will call Judah. And then all the other tribes will be to the north of that. But which tribe, if you, if you, had it, if you saw it for the 10 seconds it was up there, which tribe? <laughs> no, 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 no jab at you, Bradley. I'm just, um, you know, it, it, it isn't labeled up there. The switches aren't labeled or anything. They are labeled. They are Bradley quit. You're like, I'm not your light man anymore. You did such a good job last week, Bradley. You, you, just like you're, you're 100% correct. Yeah. It was. The lights were already off. Oh, the lights were already off. Okay. My bad. Oh. My apologies for the confusion. He thought you just wanted to turn the overhead off. It was a test. You should have said, they're already off game. You're seeing things. Well, which tribe was in the middle between Judah and the other 10 tribes up to the north? Benjamin was. Benjamin was. Do you guys see that? Benjamin is the connecting tribe between Judah and the rest. Now, Jerusalem was the capital city of the United Kingdom of Israel. Right? You all agree with that statement? Jerusalem is where the temple eventually was built. Right? Right? And whose tribe was the city of Jerusalem? There it is. It's coming back. And whose tribe is the city of Jerusalem? Judah. Benjamin. 
you're, you're, very, you're very confident with that answer, but it's wrong. Um, right there, Jerusalem. So when you go to Jerusalem, you're in Benjamin's territory. So it's interesting. Where did the kings of Israel come from, though? Judah. Judah. Where do the kings reign? From Jerusalem. And where is Jerusalem? Whose tribal allotment is that? Benjamin. Benjamin. You see how Benjamin is the connecting piece. So if you're living up here, if you're a Naphtalite or you're someone from Issachar, you have to go south and you pay homage to a king who is a Judahite, but you go worship in a city that is Benjamite city. You see how Benjamin is going to serve as his connecting piece. Now, eventually this kingdom splits in two. We see in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles, it tells us that when the Israeli kingdom split apart, north and south, that Benjamin gets absorbed into the southern kingdom and assimilates into that southern kingdom. Though they maintain for a, a certain extent their tribal identity, they get absorbed into Judah and the southern kingdom of Judah. So they're still connected to Judah. And then we see in Ezra chapter 1 verse 5, the Judah, Judahites, when, remember when Cyrus gives a decree to go back and build the temple? You guys familiar with that story a little bit? The, the exile of the, of the kingdom of Judah and Cyrus says go and build. He releases them to build the temple in Jerusalem again. Which two tribes do you think set out to build the temple? Judah and Benjamin in Ezra 1.5. Another one. David was of the tribe of who? Judah. Judah. Now there is one individual... A son of a king, and it says that his soul, that their souls were bound up together. Jonathan. Who was that person? Jonathan. Jonathan. And who was Jonathan a descendant of? Saul. Saul. Who was Saul a descendant of? Which tribe? Benjamin. 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 So you have David and you have Jonathan, a Judahite and a Benjamite, both serving. And what did Jonathan ultimately do in David's life? He spared his life, right? He was the connector piece. He preserved for David the throne of Israel. Then we have another lady in Scripture who preserved all the Jewish people living in the Persian Empire at the time. Do you remember her name? Esther. 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 You remember the story of Esther? Yeah. And what did she do? She, she was a sort of like a, a sacrifice. She laid her life on the line. For the Jewish people, the Judahites. Just take a wild guess and, and, and guess what tribe Esther is from. Benjamin. She's a Benjamite. Interesting, right? And then, of course, it would only be natural that Yeshua was of what tribe? Judah. Judah. He's the Lion of Judah, right? And then one of his biggest supporters, one of his biggest proponents... Who, who sought for the reconciliation and the reunification of the family of Israel. And said, he said in one of his letters to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And he says in another one of his letters, what would it be like if my brothers accept him as Messiah? It will be like life from the dead. Remember that? Who was that? Paul. Paul. And Paul was a descendant of which tribe? Benjamin. He was a Benjamite. You see the connection there? So Benjamin and Benjamites, in some interesting, there's a theme that flows through Scripture, serve as a connector piece between Judah and the lost northern kingdom of Israel. In other words, Benjamin is the catalyst of family restoration for Israel. 
Benjamin is the connector piece. He's the glue that brings the family back together. So do you think we're going to see that in this story that we're about to read? Absolutely. But before we jump into it, let's review. What are some parallels? I told you that I've been saying this for the past several weeks. What are some parallels between Yosef, Joseph, and Yeshua of Nazareth? You guys just shout them out. So many. Oh, my God. Name one. Neither one of them. Okay. I heard somebody back there. Hated by brothers. Hated by brothers. Yeah. Hated by bros. We'll put that. Sold for money. Good. Sold for money. Both were betrayed for silver, right? Innocent, but brought into uh, charges against. Innocent, yeah. We could say falsely accused, right? Yeah. Falsely accused. Anybody else? Savior. Became Savior. And really, I mean, became Savior of the world. Before savior of his people, right? And that's still kind of playing out in our day. Yeah. Anybody else? Another parallel? Yeah. Uh, Joseph was raised to technically the right hand of Pharaoh, just as Yeshua was raised. Yeah. Raised, we can say raised to great power. And actually, both of them were not recognized by their people. Yeah, yeah. Both identity concealed, we could say. Yeah. Both identities were concealed. Identity. Identity concealed. Anybody else? The forgiveness of Joseph and Yeshua. Yeah. 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 Both. Both desire forgiveness, don't they? Both are suffering servants. Forgiveness. Suffering servants. Yeah. Both suffer. Neither one of them try to give a defense for. Mm -mm who they are or what they Yeah, mean. yeah, they, they forgave, right? They didn't hold defense, defenses against them. They yeah. both operate in the prophetic. Both operate in the prophetic, yeah. They both um, yeah, like see, see uh, interpret dreams, and the other yes. one performs miracles. What about this? Both uh, lived a life of servant servanthood. Yeah. Both were put into a pit and brought out, right? Both resisted temptation but overcame, didn't they? Yeah. Right? What about this? Both provided their brothers with new clothes. We'll see that, right? And that's yet to be played out fully. Both provided for their people who were in need. Remember? Yes. Joseph was the preserver of the bread. His very name, Zafnaf Panea, means the keeper of the bread. And Yeshua says he is the bread of what? Yeah, John 6.35 says that anyone who eats of this bread will never hunger or thirst again. All who are hungry, come to me, right? He comes from bread town. He comes from the bread town, Beit Lechem, the house of bread. Anybody else have any other parallels? Any other parallels? What about this? How do we get access to the... How do we get reconciliation back to the Father? Through the Son. Through the son. We can leave that down. Let's go. Through the Son. Remember, Joseph's brothers could not be fully reconciled. They pretended like they were reconciled to the Father. Jacob thought they were all sinless and blameless when it came to Joseph. And that's what we do sometimes, and that's what the Jewish people do sometimes. You know, everything's good to go. I've got my Torah, I've got Talmud, I've got prayers, I've got this and that, this, wrapped to fill in everything else. But are you really truly reconciled back to the Father? And we do the same thing. We like to put on our own garments of righteousness, but are we truly reconciled back to the Father? How do we come, become truly reconciled back to the Father? Through, the Through our repentance, our confession. And 
our faith in. And our faith in the Savior. You get it? That's a big one right there, isn't it? We get reconciliation and access, complete reconciliation, not fake reconciliation to the Father through the Son. Okay? So I think I think you guys got a good understanding grasp on those parallels. Let's um let's go on here. We already covered that. Let's read Genesis 44. So if you're there. Now, we're at a famine, and and the family of Israel is starving to death. What needs to happen in order for them to be saved? They have to go to Egypt. They have to go to Egypt. To get the bread. Now, remember, they're in in this kind of a pickle, because Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. And Joseph has done this little trick with them. Remember, he hid hid some money in their sacks, and he got them to come back. And then he's going to kind of, in a very innocent way... Work things out to where he gets to see Benjamin. Now, what do the brothers need to do at this point to be saved, though? Humble themselves. They need to humble themselves. And then what else? They need to bring Benjamin in. And then to fully be saved, they need to, to confess of their wrongdoing. Remember, Joseph later is going to say, did you have any other brothers before this? And he's trying their hearts to see. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, I led you. God says, I led you all this way through the wilderness for these 40 years to test what was on your hearts. God will test our hearts at times. He knows the answer, but he wants to see if we're truly repentant. I'm losing pages of my bummer. He wants to see if we're truly repentant. Okay, let's read. Verse 1. Then he ordered the manager of his household. He said, fill the men's packs with food as much as they can carry. And put each man's money inside his pack. And put my goblet, the silver one, just inside the pack of the youngest, along with his grain money. Notice he didn't say the silver goblet I use for divination. He didn't say that. He did what Yosef told him to. At daybreak, the men were sent off with their donkeys. But before they were far from the city, Yosef said to his manager, get up and go after the men. Chase them down. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the goblet my Lord drinks from? Indeed, the one he uses for divination. Now, Joseph doesn't use it for divination. I think they're playing into the, the disguise that Joseph yeah. has put on here as an Egyptian. A lot of occult practices going on. What you have done is evil, he says. So he caught up with them and he said these words to them. And they replied, why does my Lord speak this way? Heaven forbid that we should do such a thing. Why, the money we found inside our packs, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. So... How would we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? See, that's the test number one that Joseph is putting them through. Do they still love money enough to sacrifice one of their brothers to gain a little bit of money? Because remember, there's two big sins that they committed. They loved money and they hated the brother. So this is test number one. Are they capable of overcoming that temptation of taking extra money when it's not theirs? Verse 9, whichever one of us the goblet is found with, let him be put to death. Oh now, this is, this is interesting because what they're doing is bringing upon themselves a curse, curse, not knowing that that goblet is in there. They are becoming deserving of death, aren't they? This is just like in Genesis 31 when Rachel, uh, she hides and she steals Laban's idols. Remember that? The teraphim. We talked about what those were weeks and weeks ago. But they're bringing a a curse of death upon themselves. They're saying we're worthy of death, in other words. And he said, the rest of us will be my Lord's slaves. And he replied, fine, let it be as you have said. Whichever one it is found with will be my slave. 
but the rest of you will be blameless. Which brother do you think is going to have the goblet? Let's find out. Then each hurried to put his pack down on the ground, and each opened his pack. He searched, starting with the oldest, to ending with the youngest. Who was the youngest? Benjamin. Benjamin. And the goblet was found in the pack belonging to Benjamin. And at this they tore their clothes in grief. They each, then each man loaded up his donkey and returned to the city. Why did they tear their clothes in grief? Why weren't they just like, oh, whatever, it's just another brother down. Right? If you go back to Genesis 43, remember Judah says, 43.9, he says to his father, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me responsible for, Benjamin, for Benjamin's safety. And he says, let me bear the blame forever. So let's see if Judah means what he says. He's about to put his money where his mouth is, isn't he? Verse 13, at this they tore their clothes in grief and each man loaded up his donkey and returned to the city. Oh man, we're back here in the city, right? We're just wanting to go home and sleep in our own beds and see our kids and our wives. Verse 14, Judah and his brothers arrived at Joseph's house. He was still there and they fell down before him on the ground. And Yosef said to him, said to them, how could you do such a thing? Don't you know that a man such as myself can learn the truth by divination? And Judah said, there's nothing we can say to my Lord. How can we even speak? There's no way we can clear ourselves. God has revealed your servant's guilt. So here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and also the one in whose possession the cup was found. But he replied, heaven forbid that I should act in such a way. The man in whose possession the goblet was found will be my slave. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Now, Joseph right here is doing something extremely uh, incredible. He's setting a stage for repentance. Now, if you guys as children, you did something wrong and your father or your mother called you into the room and said, what were you doing today? Did you, did, you, did you take anything from the grocery store while we were there? Now, as parents, you know that when you're asking those kinds of questions, you already know the answer, right? Uh-huh. Why are you even asking it that way? Give them a chance to repent. To give them a chance to repent. That's, up. That's what true repentance looks like. It's like, hey, I know that you got caught, but you don't know that I know that you got caught. I'm going to quiz you. I'm going to test you. And see if you really feel sorrowful for what you did. So Joseph is setting this perfect stage for repentance. The the gates of repentance are wide open now, aren't they? Now Judah has a decision to make. So as Judah approached Joseph and said, now, man, this is like dripping with like prophecy here as well. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It says, Judah approached Joseph. Judah is remembering what he told his father. He says, please, my Lord, let your servant, me, say something to you privately. And don't be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asks his servants, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, my Lord, we have a father who is an old man and a child of his old age, a little one. Now, some commentaries say that Benjamin had his up, upwards as many as uh, 10 sons at this point. And the brothers are much older than sometimes we picture at this point too. And he says, a little one whose brother is dead, so that of his mother's children, he alone is left. 
and his father loves him. Notice he's not speaking any ill towards Benjamin, is he? He has such a deep love for his father and admiration for his father at this point that he's just like, I don't want to see my father's heart being broken a second time. My father loves him. It continues. But you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I can see him. In verse 22, we answered, my Lord, the boy can't leave his father. If he were to leave his father, his father would die. And you said to your servants, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. We went up to your servant, my father, your father, or my father, and told him what my Lord had said. But when our father said, go again and buy us some food, we answered, we can't go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go down because we can't see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. When your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. The one went down from me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I haven't seen him since. Now, if you take this one away from me too and something happens to him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol with grief, the grave with grief. Verse 30, for now, if I go to your servant, my father, and the boy isn't with us, seeing how his heart is bound up with the boy's heart. Now, this is almost exact worded, wordage from uh, describing in 1 Samuel 18, describing the relationship between David and Jonathan, where it says, Vanefesh kashura, they're tied up. Kashura means to like, to strongly wrap something together. Vanefesh, their, their souls. They're like soul bound up with soul. Literally is how we could translate that. Verse 31, when he sees that the boy isn't with us, he will die. And your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol with grief. For your servant himself guaranteed his safety. And I said, if I fail to bring him down to you, then I will bear the blame before my father forever. Therefore, now here's the moment we see true repentance and Judah. Judah, the one who sold his brother into slavery. Judah, the one that had no concern for his brother's life whatsoever. Here he is saying, therefore, I beg you, let your servant, let me, Judah, stay as a slave to my Lord instead of the boy. What does that speak? How does that illuminate in Judah the love for his father, right? And let the boy go up with his brothers. For how can I go up to my father if the boy isn't with me? I couldn't bear to see my father so overwhelmed with anguish. Now, this is true repentance and transformation. When we say sorry, that doesn't mean anything. Right? Where does true repentance look? What does it look like? Where is the rubber meeting the road? My dad used to say, uh, if you say sorry and do it again, it's a lie. If you say sorry and do it again, it's a lie. Sorry doesn't mean anything if you do it again. You see, true repentance is putting your money where your mouth is. It's God, I hurt you. Wife, husband, I hurt you. Children, I hurt you. I'm sorry. Now, over time, I will get better. I will not do it again because I mean it. I've come to a point of true sorrow and anguish. I am overwhelmed with anguish at what I did to you. Now, what's interesting about this, though, is that Jacob is yet to know what happened to Joseph, right? And what's going to be interesting about this is all all the brothers come to Egypt and come to Joseph. 
it's exciting, right? It's, it's, it's amazing. This revelation, our brother is alive. But then there's like this mixture of feelings of like, wait, he can kill us too. We deserve to die. And then there's this other thought process of like, okay, we're excited that he's alive. We're excited that he's sparing our lives. We're excited that he's, he's recognizing that God is sovereign and orchestrated all this stuff. But the last part of this puzzle is that we have to go before our father. Our father who doesn't know anything about what really happened to Joseph. We have to go and stand before our father. And we're going to have to, our father is going to be like, wait a second. If Joseph is alive, what happened to the coat? Why did the coat get all bloody? How did he make it to Egypt? What, what happened to him when I sent him to you guys in, in Shechem? And you were actually up in Dothan. What, tell, what is going on here? I'm so confused. The brothers are going to have to go, Dad, we messed up. We're sorry. Will you forgive us? See this, this two-part, you approach, and that's it. Our, us as believers, we approach and see Yeshua as our salvation, as our atonement for sin, and we overcome, we realize we deserve death. We deserve the punishment that sin brings. Wow, Yeshua did that for us. And then there's a coming to the Father. Father, I'm sorry. I love you, right? And that's the template that's being played out here. It's a beautiful template, isn't it? Now, when Judah repents, this is the moment. This is the climax of the entire story right here. And every page in Scripture, and this included, is pointing to the greatest climax of Scripture, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua of Nazareth. The greatest moment in all of history is him coming out of that grave. And this story is pointing to that as well. So prophetically speaking, when Yeshua's brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery, the ones who betrayed him, the ones who spat on him, the ones who cast lots for his garments, when they approach him and they confess, when they show true repentance, it says 45 verse 1. It says, Yosef could no longer control his emotions in front of his tenants, and he cried. He wept aloud. And he said, get away, everybody away from me. See, that's it. That's the moment. That's the moment Yosef said. Yosef could have got the guys in there and been like, hey, guys, real quick, I'm Joseph. It's okay. Blah, 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 right? But he set the stage just so perfectly. He orchestrated all these events because why? He knew that God wanted to use him as a great salvation for the people of Israel, for the family. Joseph knew that he was just being used as a vessel of salvation. And he saw the bigger picture, didn't he? But it says like life from the dead. Hosea 5.15 says, I will speak again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in distress earnestly seek my face. Zechariah 12.10 And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on whom whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. And weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. These, these two passages I just read to you are from the pages of the prophets. These are talking about things that are yet to be fulfilled in the future. These are talking about things with, with Yeshua and his Jewish brothers and sisters. When they come face to face, he will pour out on them a spirit of supplication. And they will recognize Yeshua of Nazareth as their savior. And Paul says, until then, a hardening, a partial hardening has come over them. So what is Joseph entitled to do at this point? 
A, or what did his brothers deserve? A, have them all punished in some way? Is he entitled to do that? Yeah. Absolutely. Gabe Rutledge would do that. <laughs> to the dungeon, right? While I figure out how to torture you or whatever. I want you to feel what I had to feel, right? I want you to experience the rejection. I want you to experience the loneliness and the despair and waiting all those years as a servant and as a slave. I want you to go through that. And then I'll, maybe I'll bring you back in. Yeah, he could do that. He's entitled to that. B, he could maintain his anonymity and take a say la vie attitude, right? Joseph, after all, why would he rock the boat? He has a pretty sweet gig, right? He's number two in all of Egypt. Why would he bring his messy, dysfunctional family into his palace? Right? Some of us, too, have experienced a lot of messy, dysfunctional family stuff in our past. And we're like, you know what? I'm better off just letting the dead dog lie. I don't want to be in contact with them because when I think about what they did to me, it deeply, deeply bothers me and irritates me. And it, and it, it wells up in me a sense of resentment and bitterness. Joseph could totally have taken that stance. He could have been like, nope. You guys go on back. See ya. I'm not even going to reveal my real identity to you. Would he be entitled to do that? Yes. Absolutely. Would that be a merciful act for Joseph to do? Absolutely. That would be huge amounts of mercy and grace that he would show his brothers. The brothers who deserve to die. If he was just like, okay guys, goodbye. I'm Zafnaf Panea. It was good to do business with you. Goodbye. Lahitra O's, yeah. But what did Joseph do? He did the hard, he did option C, the hard and painful work of bringing restoration to the whole family by forgiving his brothers. Why? Because he saw the larger plan of God at work in that. Joseph heard the prophecies given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that your descendants will be as numerous as the skies, as a star in the skies, and the specks of sand on the, on the earth. And Joseph says, ah, now I know that I am the puzzle piece in this plan of preservation for the family of Israel. If it isn't for me saving the grain for them, if it isn't for me bringing them here, then I will not see the promises of God fulfilled. Right? See, our sin and the sin of Joseph's brothers do not surprise God in any way. When we mess up and we fall on our faces and we do something that's very unrighteous, very unjust, we do something that's very selfish, that doesn't surprise God. Yeah, it might displease him. He might be saddened by that. But he's sovereign. He can use your your mess-ups, he can use your unrighteousness, he can use your selfishness or your anger, he can use that to bring about the fruition of his plans, if we allow him. Right? So we see what Joseph did for us. What did we deserve? Death. What did Gabe Rutledge deserve? Death. Right? What did Brian Meadows deserve? Jeremy or... or, or Anybody in this room, what did we deserve? Death. Death. The wages of sin. How many of you are sinless and have been your entire life? Okay, good. Just make sure we're on the same page here. The wages of sin are what? The paycheck that you get from sinning is what? Death. Death. 
And how do you pay that debt? Through your death. But, says in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, Paul says. And all of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Now, our, our culture right now is so wrapped up in following our desires and our passions wicked, and our inclinations. Wicked, wicked. And sometimes people say, I was born this way. Well, I read my Bible and it says that you need to be born again. Yes. Right? And take on and conform to the, 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 the mind of Yeshua. And reject your former desires and inclinations of your sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger. Just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, isn't he? And he loved us so much. Even when we were dead in our sin. In other words, even when we did diddly squat to deserve it. He made us alive together with Messiah. And when that event is transpiring, what does Yeshua say? Hey guys, uh, I, I don't want to do this because you clearly don't know who I am. You don't know what I'm about to do. You don't deserve what I'm about to do for you. You know, Gabe Rutledge in the year 2023, born in 1984, will live a, a, a wretched life, right? Before coming to know me, will be a selfish human being who lives for his own desires and inclinations. You know what? I'm good. I don't want to get up on that cross. He had every right to do that. He was entitled to that, right? But what did he do? As we spat on him, as we divided up his clothes, as we mocked him, he said, forgive them, Father, because they don't know what they're doing. Just like Joseph said, don't worry, because God had a plan in place. You didn't know what you were doing. You were doing something very selfish, but ultimately it's something that needed to happen for your salvation. You just don't know that. Wow. Paul calls that a, a mystery of the gospel, isn't it? It's amazing how God's working and weaving everything together the way he did. I want to pray real quick before we close out with an ironic benediction. Father, I pray if there is anyone in this room that has yet to commit their life to Yeshua, our Savior, yet to surrender over and crucify their, their inclinations, their desires, their addictions, their pride, their arrogance, their unforgiveness, their bitterness towards someone else, Father, that right now your spirit would move in a way that is just unrelenting, that it would, it would stir in them a desire to want to come clean before you, to embrace Yeshua as their Savior. Father, I thank you for everyone in this room. Father, you are so faithful. As I look out across this room, and I see more chairs full than I see empty. It was just five years ago, Father, that you called Stacy and I and our family to this area. And it didn't make any sense, Father. But Father, we just remain faithful and we surrender all control over to you, even to this day. You are in charge. Father, may you weave our lives together, just like the, the life of Joseph and his brothers. May we serve as a catalyst of salvation and restoration to those around us. May we serve as an embassy of your coming kingdom in this city of Dothan. When people look at us, they see people that love one another. They see people that have conflicts, but resolve them. I thank you, Father, for all that you will do through our congregation, all that you have done. Father, we thank you that your word is true and that your people will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. 
We thank you, we love you, and praise you. In Yeshua's name, amen. Well, guys, let's take five, ten minutes. If you have any Q&A or uh, comments that you want to add, I know it's kind of weird. People are like, wait, you do that here? We do. Um, we started off as a Bible study as a congregation. We started off as a Bible study with about six to eight members in it. And Mary Shelley here was one of them. And we just sat around and discussed the Bible, read the Bible. Uh, and we kind of try to maintain that to a certain extent at the end of the teaching and let people raise their hand, ask questions or comments. So um, I know that's weird for some of you people that are used to maybe like three-point sermon and an altar call, but I think it's good. We all kind of learn together, but you guys have any questions or comments? It's okay if you don't get it, Questions or comments? Yeah, Jason. So at the end, they, they clearly demonstrate in their behavior. Obviously, he initiates these tests. They demonstrate in their behavior a change of heart. Yeah. Which leads to repentance. But what would you say about Joseph's state of mind? Had, had they revealed something other than a change of character, other than repentance? I mean, he still has to deal with bitterness. So that comes yeah. into the question of how does what does What does forgiveness look like when the offending party is not repentance? It looks a hundred times harder. A hundred times harder. And as far as I know, Yeshua did not get that repentance from the people that offended him. Yeshua, knowing that Judas would betray him, forgave him. He almost took it to the next level. Knowing that he was going to be wronged, forgave Judas. Uh, but it's a hundred times harder. It really is. And it's something that um, 
takes, takes way more work and surrender to be able to achieve. But at the same time, knowing that our master and our savior did it as well, we're in good company. Um, if he can do it, that means we're called to try to do the same thing and attempt our best to do the same thing. But it isn't easy. And I acknowledge that and I recognize that. It is an incredibly hard thing to do when someone has wronged us, deeply wronged us, especially when they die. I counsel with people sometimes that they've been wronged by someone in their past and that person dies. And you can't ever confront that person. You can't ever go to them and say, you wronged me with the hopes that they would repent and ask for your forgiveness. And we have a choice to make in that scenario. Do I carry around with me the weight of the unforgiveness from that situation? Or do I release them of that and forgive them, knowing that Yeshua did that as well, and I go on living my life as a vessel worthy of his glory for those around me? And that's a really tough choice to make. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's a common thing, for sure. For sure. It's a really good question. Yeah, anybody else? Yeah, Bobby? speculate that Joseph didn't know he had a purpose the entire time. In other words, like as he's sitting and rotting in prison, to the best of his knowledge, he's not getting out anytime soon. That he, he might not have known he had a purpose. But he might have realized there was a purpose all of this when here's when I think that he had he realized he had a purpose. When Pharaoh calls him in and says he had a dream. And what was the dream about? Stacey knows where I'm going with this. What was the dream about? Remember, cows and grain. And what was Joseph's dreams about? Back to, he shared with his brother. Grain. So he gets called into the number one guy in all of Egypt. He gets called out of prison. And then he's, this guy is sharing dreams with him. And the dreams are about grain. Joseph, I'm sure, thought back, wait a second. I got in all this heap of problems. I went through this entire detour of my life for all these years because I, too, have dreams about grain. I think maybe Joseph got a little glimmer of hope that God's working in this somehow. Tiny little glimmer. But, uh, yeah, good point. Chris, I saw your hand, and then we'll go to uh, Mike. Oh, can we pause a second? Can you show everybody the shirt I got you in Jerusalem? <laughs> so, my boys call Chris cool dad because he's way cooler than me. And they say that I'm not cool. So I found that shirt in the old city of Jerusalem. And it says Abba, which means father, and Sababa, which means cool. So he's Abba Sababa today. So anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Abba Sababa.
going through dealing with that and being free from that sin, that way you can live your life the way God wants, you know, he, let God be the influence, not that sin in your life. So, uh, that's, I, I go through, I've been through it, so going through it, yeah. and it's, it's something that's helped me, helped me because there's going to be many people that's going to transgress against you, or, or your loved ones, but, and who are we to think that we deserve more? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask that question to see what could distinguish what you might say about what distinguishes um, say someone wrongs you, they come, they they repent, and you either you have two choices. You forgive them and there's reconciliation, or there you don't forgive them and there's no reconciliation. Yeah. So there's a different set of things going on, especially if the person says, Well, no, I haven't wronged you, or I refuse to repent of that. And it's like, how do you deal with that? Because Yeshua, our salvation is dependent on our repentance, mm -hmm. our acceptance of the sacrifice. Yeah. It seems like it's a two-way street. So what does it mean when it's a one-way street, mm -hmm. and you're dealing with the emotional part of that one-way street? Yeah. Is it a one-way street? Is it a two-way street? That's the question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess it can be both at times. No, it's not only one way. Uh, and some of that fits within the context of Matthew 18. You know, if uh, your brother or sister wrong you, go to them privately and confront them. And, you know, if they if they repent, then you won a brother over again, you know. But if they don't, then you take two or three witnesses. And there's a protocol there, you know. And, um, and unfortunately, sometimes you see people that don't want to go through that protocol. And they just peel off and you don't get that true uh, repentance. And you don't get that, that confession of their wrongdoing against you. Yeah, that's when it becomes really, really tough. Um, but just like in Matthew, uh, when, when Yeshua gives us, uh, Matthew chapter 6, I think it's verse 15, Yeshua says, at, right at the end of the Lord's Prayer, we say, uh, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. But he goes, if you read the very next verse, he says, for if you do not forgive others of their offenses, your, forgive, your offenses will not be forgiven of you. Uh, we, that's not, that didn't make it into the Lord's Prayer, but it's there right at the end of that. But yeah, it's a good thought. Mike? And then we'll go to Carol. Well, I just wanted to say, Stacey, you should have heard the wonderful things that you said. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I can't remember what they were now. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. That's $20 somewhere. Uh, Carol? And we'll make Carol our last question or comment for today. Warm, so we're going to say the Hamotzi blessing, and then Anthony's not here, so I'm going to lead us in the uh, Iran connection.